You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, maybe for some of you, good middle of the night. Uh, my name is David Stewart. I'm the Chief of Child Poverty and Social Protection for UNICEF in New York, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to this webinar that we're hosting with ODI. Um, this event and the report that we're going to be discussing is to answer a simple question. Is it time for universal child benefits? Now, of course, the, the answer may be, may be less simple. Let me start by mentioning a little bit about what drove UNICEF to ask this question. Um, and it comes from some well-established but some, some challenging facts. The first is that children are twice as likely to live in poverty as adults. And we know the impacts on them are devastating, on their health, on their education, uh, on their protection, on their nutrition. And the impacts, while they hit children hardest and most immediately, play out over time in intergenerational poverty, affecting societies and economies deep into the future. We also know that child benefits, cash transfers, can make an enormous difference in the lives of children and families. The evidence is really, really clear on improved access to food, better access to education, to health, uh, improved protection outcomes. They're not a silver bullet, but the impacts really have been proven beyond any doubt. But we also know, and this is where things don't exactly add up, that despite this, two out of three children in the world have no access to any form of child, child or family benefit at all. And it was this gap and this potential which is what drove us to ask the question, what can be done? Now, one of the real advantages of working for UNICEF is we work in so many different countries uh, in the world and we can learn so much from actions that gov governments are taken. And it was really the actions of governments, including those on the panel today, that have pushed forward and expanding child benefits which has led us to see and to ask, is there real potential in moving this forward at pace to address child poverty? So we'll hear from South Africa where child benefits began um, with younger children and expanded to older children under 17 through time. In Mongolia, where upwards of 80% of children are covered. In Kenya, which really led the region in pushing forward on child grants and now is grappling with questions of expansion and universality. And of course, there are there are many others, hopefully in the audience with us today, Thailand, uh, Argentina, Soto and others. Not to mention, of course, high income countries where universal child benefits are essentially the norm. Now, of course, it's a, a complicated question to take something that may have worked somewhere and see if it can work in another context. And this is really where the work of the report has come in. Um, to, to try and understand what are the pros and the cons and the challenges to see how context-specific the questions of child benefits, universal child benefits, what can we learn and how can we, we move forward. And we're delighted to have Francesca with us today as well as Professor Martin Rebellion to look at some of these broader contextual questions. Now, the work on this report started before COVID and the lockdowns that came with it, but boy, has the pandemic emphasised the need for programs such as these. We've seen almost 200 countries expand their social protection programming in, in response to the crisis, including, including many who have uh, child and family benefit programs. We know the implications of the crisis are beginning 
um, they're going to roll out in terms of the socioeconomic impact with estimates from UNICEF and Save the Children suggesting that 117 million additional children are likely to be living in poverty by the end of 2020. So the challenges are clear, um, but the lessons learned on what potentially we can do also are. And so today, UNICEF and ODI are really delighted to be able to convene this uh, outstanding panel to have uh, a conversation about how we might move forward in this area. So let me introduce the panel. We're delighted to have uh, Minister Arianaza, Minister of Labour and Social Protection from the government of Mongolia. Minister, welcome. Um, we are also delighted to have Principal Secretary Marwa from the, the Principal Secretary for Social Protection in the Ministry of Labour and Social Protection in Kenya. Principal Secretary, welcome. Uh, we have Deputy Deputy Director General Sibeko, who uh, leads on comprehensive social security from the government of South Africa. Ms. Sibeko, welcome also to the panel. Uh, and Francesca Bastagli, Director of Equity and Social Policy and lead author for ODI of the reports. Francesca, great to have you with us. And finally, Professor Martin Revalian, Professor of Economics from, from Georgetown uh, University. So really a tremendous collection of, of minds and thinkers and, and people who have really experienced these questions to help us think through how we can, we can move forward. Um, and we're delighted to have uh, such a large audience with us today. So welcome to everybody. Please do enter your questions for our panel in the box um, below. We're also using the hashtag, hashtag universal child benefit. So you can post questions, follow, comment. Um, and we're, we're, we're tweeting at, at ODI Dev and at UNICEF SOC Policy. So we have an hour and a half for this conversation. And I think with much to say, time is always gonna be tight. Let me get my apologies in, in advance if I end up rushing anybody um, or if there are questions which we don't get to. So with that, let us begin the conversation. And Francesca, I think uh, I would like to start by, by having a bit of a conversation with you about the report that was put together, which really provides the foundation for this conversation uh, and maybe taking us through some of the highlights. The, the first question I had for you is a simple one, potentially, but one that can, can trip me up when I get asked it, which is what exactly are UCBs, Universal Child Benefits, and how widespread are they? Thank you, David. Thank you so much. And hello to everyone who's who's joining us, the panel and, and, and online. Um, so what are UCBs? They are cash or tax transfers or child benefits paid to children, primarily and usually via their primary child, um, their care providers. Uh, and they are labeled as universal when they're paid to all children independently of their um, their, their circumstances there or their household's demographics and, and wider wider situation. They're unconditional, which means that they don't, you know, receipt or participation, the program doesn't require uh, pursuing, complying with particular behavior or any other sort of requirement. Um, they're also uh, paid regularly. So I think an important fact is that they're not a one-off payment. A one-off payment to children is something else. Uh, they're paid regularly and have a minimum duration. And there's, I think, you know, scope for debate on, on what a you know, minimum duration would be. But at a minimum, we're thinking about a meaningful time, number of years that covers a, a good span of, of childhood. 
In the ODI uh, UNICEF report uh, that, that, that we recently published, we use it as a benchmark a minimum of 10 years of regular um, payments of child benefits. Um, so, so that's what you, know, you, you could call a full UCB. Um, and a number of countries, I mean, according to, to a recent count, up to 23 countries um, do have full universal child benefits. Um, however, and so any child benefit that departs from those features uh, doesn't quite qualify as a full UCB. However, I think it's, it's what we have to do is in, in, and is useful to do is, of course, to think not just in terms of these extreme, you know, exclusive categories of whether, you know, universal or non-universal child benefit, but consider, of course, the, the degrees. In reality, we're talking about con a continuum. And so child benefits, much like other cash transfers, may be, you know, display different degrees of universalism uh, and or degrees of targeting. And so you, what we see in many countries might have child benefits that are not quite universal in terms of coverage, so they may not be reaching the full child population, but, but do, do reach you know, high numbers of, of, of children, may, may reach up to 80% of, of children in a country um, or 60. Uh, and I think these, we need to consider these still you know, separately from, from um, child benefits that very narrowly target uh, or aim to reach uh, a small subgroup of children. So there are child benefits that um, maybe target uh, and, and reach 0.2% or even smaller uh, percentages of a full child um, population. So this is a, a rough you know, background of what UCBs are. Thanks so much, uh, Francesca. Um, a follow-up question, really in a way the heart, I think, of, of where we've started thinking about this question and looked into, wanted to look into the research, is the effectiveness of universal child benefits in addressing poverty and inequality. Because of course, there's a there's an idea that why spread money so thin? Wouldn't it be better focusing on the people who need it most um, and providing greater resources? Now, I know that's a complex question, but what did the report find um, in that uh, on that question? Yeah, well, so a number of factors will you know determine the performance of a child benefit, how well it does in terms of reducing child poverty, or indeed poverty and inequality also more widely. Um, when if we focus on the specific parameters of a, of a child benefit the what matters um i mean two factors that matter very clearly are population coverage and the value of the transfer and the evidence indicates quite clearly that you know child benefits that have high child population coverage and, and higher comparatively higher levels of values of transfers are associated with greater reductions in poverty and, and in inequality so 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 we know that, you know, this is what the evidence shows. I think, that the, you know, at the heart of this debate on the effectiveness of alternative types of, of child benefits and cash transfers along the universalism and, and targeting sort of continuum, um, rests the question of how we approach the issue, right? And, and essentially, in simplified terms, you can approach it in a more sort of static way or a more dynamic one, where you factor in not just sort of the direct immediate effect potential effect of, of a cash transfer, um, but also secondary effects, political economy effects, and so on. So if, you know, in a condition or a situation of inequality, and, and most of us are facing, you know, are living in countries with high and, and growing inequality rates, if you have a fixed level of resources, a fixed, um, you know, given a fixed budget, um, it's, you know, targeting this, these resources to those that are worse off is intuitively very appealing. 
of course, right? I mean, if your objectives are certainly you know reducing inequality and or or, or poverty, um, but often but often this this intuitive appeal is based on, as I said, an assumption of a fixed budget. Number one, and so, so secondly, assumptions around the implementation of targeting in practice. Uh, and often the assumption is that it's sort of somehow automatic or straightforward that resources are somehow destined to a particular subgroup of the population. And of course, these two assumptions don't actually really hold. And this is what comes across in the report, but also in the work of others, where from a from a, the perspective of, of level of resources or, or budget constraint, we know well that the budgets are not fixed. They can be, they can expand, they can, um, you know, they can be reduced. And one of the factors that drives uh, shifts in budgets is, is policy design itself. So once you start to factor in the political economy and politics of, of, um, of universalism and targeting, what the evidence suggests is that policies that are universal or universalistic in, in, in aspiration tend to command um, you know, higher public support, um, and these are this is associated with higher higher budgets for spending, higher benefit levels, and also relatedly, you know, higher continuity in policy. On the on the implementation side of things, once you start to consider, um, you know, the reality of administering targeting, uh, and and this is even more so when you look at you know narrow means testing, or, or narrow targeting of other kind. Um, there are administrative costs associated with this, uh, social costs in the form of, you know, the invasiveness, the potential divisiveness that this creates. Um, and then, of course, also the potential behavioral you know, incentive and, and, and related behavioral effects that means testing or narrow targeting can lead to, which in turn can work against you know, progress against poverty um, and inequality reduction. So once you start to factor in these more dynamic and, and sort of secondary effect considerations, the, the uh, this intuitive appeal of, of, of targeting might is somewhat weakened. And certainly, uh, and the evidence points in this direction to the potential benefits or advantages of universalistic or universal approaches in this sense. From a, from a poverty and inequality reduction perspective. Having said this, I want to re-emphasize the point that we do need to be talking about the continuum. The details matter. It's not just a dichotomy of universal versus targeted. I mean, this is an age-old issue, and it applies to child benefits as well. Certain degrees of targeting, um, and again, we need to distinguish between the broader targeting and, and other more narrowly um, and, and complex uh, targeting procedures can be absolutely beneficial in terms of poverty and inequality reduction. Great. Thank you so much, Francesca. And just a final word, you, you were coming uh, to this question of cost. Is it possible for the report just to summarise a sense of how much these benefits can cost in different contexts? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, David. I mean, cost and affordability is is clearly a big issue, and and one that is often raised in terms of, of constraints. So, you know, governments explain that they would, you know, they would be intentioned to expand the child benefit, but don't have the resources to do so. The, if we look at actual costs, and the report provides, you know, has a, has an entire chapter on this. So the Countries that, that that have full UCBs, these in terms of percentage of GDP, these generally cost around one percent of GDP. Uh, and if we look at high-income countries, they're spending around one point on average, one point seven two percent of GDP on benefits to to children and families. This contrasts with with um, 
average spending on low in low income countries on children on, on child and family allowances or benefits with, which is at around 0.2%. Now if you the, the actual cost of a UCB will depend very much on you know the number or share of children in a population uh, and the level and where the transfer value of the transfer where the value is set and one thing we do in the in the report is we provide cost estimates um, based on alternative scenarios of these two variables. So varying either you know, the, the, the population, the underlying population. Um, so for instance, cost estimates, what would it cost to provide a, a, you know, a UCB to children ages zero to 14 versus to, to children zero to four, for example. Uh, but also varying the level of the transfer with respect to use different, in relation to different poverty lines, the international poverty line or national poverty lines. And here, and I'll just give, you know, again, uh, one example really, but, um, and I, you know, I do you know, recommend people take a look at the report for, for, for the details of all of this. And, and just to be clear, these are indications or approximations and not to be taken too, too literally. But um, for, for low-income countries, a, ch a universal child benefit to children zero to, to 14 is expected to cost around 2% of GDP. So that if you think back to the you know, figures I gave earlier, that's roughly in line with what high-income countries, and in fact, just above what high-income countries are currently spending on, um, on child and family benefits, mm -hmm. um, and, and considerably higher than the current expenditure, 0.2% you know, of GDP spent on, on child, child benefits in LICs, in low-income low countries. If, uh, however, for instance, if you take um, the age group zero to four, the provision of a universal child benefit for children zero to four is, we, we estimated roughly the cost of 0 0.7, 0.9% of GDP. And what this, what this um, points to is the possibility of, of uh, progress, what, what is you know, often referred to as progressive realization of um, increasingly universal child benefits. And, and this is the reality of what countries have done in practice. Uh, those that now, including ones that now you know, are, have full UCBs, where they in, in early years come started by setting up child benefits that you know, were universal to a population of children delimited, for instance, by age. So you could, you know, one option that, that follows on from, from what I've just outlined in terms of costs might be you know, uh, starting with a, with, a, with a benefit for children zero to four with a plan or a vision and a view to then gradually expand um, coverage. Now, uh, I'm sorry, I'm mindful of time, but obviously, I mean, it's clear that any expansion of, of child benefit of coverage uh, and indeed, you know, even a move towards a full universal child benefit requires uh, resource mobilization. Um, there's no question about this, and I, I think we'll hear from other, you know, panelists, fellow panelists, about how this has been achieved. The report also provides, you know, a number of examples of how this has been achieved in countries, you know, concretely. But also, what are the concrete options? And there are, there are, you know, a number of options that governments may have to mobilize resources um, to to help expand child benefits. Excellent. Thank you so much, Francesca. Um, and I think what we should, we'll try and put the link of the report in the chat. Uh, maybe it's already there. So for the, for the multitaskers among you, you can have a quick look and for the rest of us, we can look afterwards. Um, so, so building out from the report, let's start digging in some of the examples that came up into the report, which really show how this has been taken on in different countries. Uh, and I'm delighted to, to welcome and introduce Minister Arian Zaya from uh, 
Mongolia. Um, now, in Mongolia, the Child Money Program has really been a sort of leading example of experience on universal and post-universal child benefits, with the program reaching around 80% of children. Uh, Minister, we would love to hear about uh, a little bit about Mongolia's experience. Uh, maybe if you could start by telling us how you see the question of targeting versus universal approaches and the impacts uh, of poverty and inequality uh, in Mongolia. And it would also be interesting to hear a little bit about the role the Child Money Programme um, is playing in the COVID response. So, Minister, welcome and over to you. Thank you so much, David. Uh, so first of all, uh, I'd like to express my warm greetings to the organizers and participants of this event. On behalf of government of Mongolia and myself, I'd like to express my sincere gratitude to UNICEF and um, ODI for organizing this virtual launch of the review report. Um, Mongolia is um, uh, having a population of 3.3 million um, uh, and... Um, the, uh, almost 40% of our population is actually children under age uh, 18. So at most uh, important priority, of course, objectives of uh, Mongolia state policy is to promote the birth rate and maintain stable population growth uh, because it is crit critically uh, significant for the, um, as uh, Mongolia is undergoing demographic dividend. Um, the government of Mongolia has been implementing child benefit programs since ages. I mean, even to Chinggis Khan times, we have uh, cared uh, to um, orphanage and widowers and so on. Um, before Soviet times, even to the 19, um, in the um, early 60s, we had law on increasing the amount of pension for mothers who have, who have uh, given birth and raised many children, and it is called honorable mothers. With the policy is uh, still currently now uh, running. So during this time, uh, the policies that we have uh, run uh, were also targeted, but also then universal and so on. So we tried every um, examples. Uh, currently, our child benefit program has covered um, almost 100%. So it is by now 96.6% um, of total uh, children under age 18. And it is because uh, of the COVID um, uh, social program. So the budget allocated for child benefits account uh, is now 37.3% of total budget for social welfare service. Um, and this is around 0.7% zero, uh, 0 of GDP. Um, in US dollars to express it is uh, around 100 uh, million US dollars. So um, in Mongolia, child poverty is uh, actually calculated very high. Um, currently, the uh, we are having poverty rate, which is calculated every two years with the World Bank on hand of household and income expenditure survey. Uh, we are having, uh, as 2018, around um, 30%, so 28.4% is under poverty line. Um, and of those, uh, the child poverty rate is uh, 385 So, um, and this is um, children under 15 of age accounts 42% among the population of Mongolia. So there is a tendency that household with many children likely to fall uh, into poverty. So um, if the household members uh, more than eight, 
um, then the uh, around those households, around 90% of those are um, fallen into poverty. So child benefit is the main income source of the poor households and 30% of total households uh, spend the child benefit on daily necessities. Um, as middle income household, they uh, also spend um, uh, child benefit for their children's health, education, and at a certain extent, they save as uh, it's as investment for future development. But the household, it is uh, not many households have savings. So um, due to household income expenditure survey, around 22% of households in Mongolia are uh, having um, savings. So um, you see Mongolia is highly vulnerable to climate shocks which have become more frequently and severe as a result of climate change. Um, the, the National Statistical Office of Mongolia and um, uh, DIV Berlin, uh, they have had um, uh, this study even uh, on the uh, coping with climate shock in Mongolia um, in 2012, also in 2015. And the uh, study shows that the lasting negative impact on children, human capital development, due to reduced income and the policy recommendations coming out of the study strongly favors topping up welfare programs um, like the child benefit programs. Um, so uh, now the, uh, with the cooperation with UNICEF, we have implemented a pilot on top-up children child benefit using the existing welfare system um, in order to strengthen the social protection system with shock responsiveness. Um, the study now reveals that the ZOD affected um, households spent top-ups mainly on food, warm clothing, and health-related costs during pandemic times. So uh, it is very important, especially nowadays with the COVID situation, to leave no one behind and to really reach out to all households. And uh, reaching out to all households um, is mainly very uh, targeted, um, I mean, fair one through the children in the household. Yeah, that's uh, for the first part. Minister, thank you so much. It's really, really interesting to hear about the experience, interesting to hear about the use of the cash transfer, because I know there's, all, there's a lot of questions uh, in, different, in different people's minds about how, how transfers are used. So it's always interesting to hear that, as well as the, the, the use for top-ups and considering future climate shocks. Maybe just one very quick follow-up at this stage on the question of financing and how Mongolia has, has gone about financing the, the universal child benefit. So the Mongolia, um, Mongolian government um, has allocated additional uh, uh, 277.8 million to fund the top-ups. So um, initially we have on the budget 100 million and then plus now 277.8 million. And um, in cooperation with ADB and UNICEF, uh, the government of Mongolia conducted micro simulations that will provide insights on the economic impacts of the top-ups. Um, and of course, we have done it not uh, on our um own strings. I mean, uh, development partners have been helping us and um, like the World Bank or uh, the ADB and UNICEF and UNDP, the whole bunch of uh, um, international uh, colleagues have been there um, helping us and reaching out the hand 
in due to help us to uh, uh, overcome uh, with um, very little um, um, damages through the COVID situation. Minister, thank you so, so much. Um, let, let me pass now to De Deputy Director Sebeko uh, from the Government of South Africa. Uh, it's wonderful to have you with us. It was interesting when Francesca was opening and talking about how countries have moved sometimes through age ranges, starting with younger children. It's very much, it seems, the experience of South Africa, starting with the grant um, for under sevens and then expand, expanding now to under 17s over time with over 65% of children covered. Um, Deputy Director, I wonder if you could tell us what drove South Africa to invest so significantly in a program which reaches children so widely uh, and also, if you could uh, give us a quick sense of the role the child support grant has played in mitigating the impacts of, of COVID on children and families in South Africa. Over to you. All right. Thank you so much, Stuart. Uh, let, uh, Mr. Stuart, let me start um, by acknowledging first the ministers that are in the panel. I'm honoured to be in the same panel with you. And also the, the, the colleagues who are also on, on, on the panel. And to thank UNICEF for giving us the this platform to be able to discuss these things and learn from each other, because that is primarily what all of us want to do is to address issues of child poverty and see and learn from other countries' experiences. So it's an honor to do this, um, to be part of this panel in that regard. With regard to the questions themselves, I think it's important to first paint a picture of the context within which this is happening in South Africa. You know that there is a history that we have, that we have inherited in South Africa, the history of deliberate uh, impoverization, basically, of the large majority of the population. So when, when the new democratic dispensation was established in 1994, we inherited very high levels of poverty and inequality. Um, and at the moment, we actually have the it's not an honor, I don't know what it is, but we are ranked as the most unequal country in the world. So that means that we had to deal with poverty at a very fast pace because the levels of inequality in the country were quite high and there was a strong political commitment to addressing the issues of poverty because the new government coming into power needed to show um, basically needed to turn around the country in order to become a country that's inclusive and deal with the legacy of apartheid. So the first, one of the first things that happened was the establishment of a national constitution, which establishes social security and social assistance as a, as, I mean, the right to access for all the, for all the population. That was the first thing. So from a political commitment perspective, there was a constitution that says everyone has a right to access social security, including if they're unable to support themselves. But then there's also the prioritization in the constitution of the rights of children to, to also be able to be provided with care. So, so though that combination was one of the things through which it was the, the legislative tool, to, so to speak, that allowed the country to be able to progress in the, in the direction of extending child support uh, benefits to, to poor children. Um, of course, we're also signatories to various things like the Convention on, on, on um, the Social, Cultural and Economic Rights and also the, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child and the African Union Charter on the Rights of... So all of these other instruments, international instruments, were providing kind of guidance, guidance for the country to be able to determine the program that it would put uh, together in terms of providing for the needs of the children. So firstly, there's that, the, 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 the political commitment, then the instruments, the legal instruments that were put in place. But you will also remember that uh, at the time that we... That, 
the government started, there wasn't even an institutional, a proper institutional framework for which this could be done, uh, through which this could be done. So the decision was to establish an institution that would, whose primary responsibility would be to provide social grants um, for, for all of the population in order to ensure that there's equity um, uh, for, for all of the for, for everyone who accesses the benefit, because prior to 1994, this program was in provincial departments, and there were all sorts of difficulties in people being able to access it. So, a, a proper legislative framework was created, motivated by the, the history of apartheid, the high levels of poverty, and and, and what Francesca was saying that generally the, the the levels of poverty among children is obviously much higher than among the parents. And in South Africa, we also have the the, the, the I don't think it's unique, but it's one of the biggest problems that we have, which is that the majority of children are in single parent homes, and the single parents are women who also are at the bottom in terms of uh, the economic um, economic levels in the country. So there was a need to prioritize the children and say, let's create some, some kind of income support for them. Uh, the fiscal commitment was there because there was political commitment and there was a legislation. But in addition, I think South Africa, having come from where it came from, there was also the issues of strong social activism in the country. There's a lot of NPOs, NGOs who would also motivate and agitate for the need of the government to address issues of poverty and inequality and that also created additional momentum for the country to start creating the program in terms of the the, the design of it and why we didn't go like, like immediately to universalization of the grant is the the, the problem of the, the balance basically between given that the levels of poverty were so high the budget requirements for this would have also been quite high to reach all of the children in one go so that the, the the government decided that we'll move over time we'll do what the constitution calls progressive realization. So the progressive realization agenda was start with children up to the age of seven and then go over to up to age nine and then age 11 age until we reach all of the children. So now we reach all of the age groups from zero to 18 with the child support grant. But that was done over time as fiscal space was made available to allow the government to be able to implement this. One one of the other things that we had to deal with was not only the, the child support grant in generality, but also children who do not have parents, like who need to be fostered. So there's also another benefit that we provide in the country called the foster child care, the foster child grant for, 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 for children who do not have parents and are looked after by other people. And there's a grant in that regard. We also provide a specific grant, for what we call the care dependency grant. For children who, for disabled children who need care, who, who need a dedicated person to look after them, and so, so these three types of grants are the are the interventions that the country is put in place. Income support, but in addition to income support, there's also other interventions that are done um, that the country provides. For example, we 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 provide free schooling. Uh, for children from poor families, there are schools that are no fee schools, so there's no fees that are required in those schools. Although other schools charge fees, and then we also provide free healthcare for children up to the age of six. There's free immunization for children, uh, a whole range of benefits such as those to make sure that we are dealing with child poverty not only from the point of view of income, but also from the point point of view of other services that children need to be able to access. Um, So the program is quite large in terms of cover currently 12 million children in total in the different types of grants that are provided. Um, 
So, so with regards to the impact of the, the CSG on, on, on COVID, this is the last point I'm making now. In that regard, what um, we have done is it's actually been instrumental in enabling us to actually address the, the, the poverty fallout from, from the grant. Because what we've done in the first month of the, of the lockdown in the country, the grant was increased by a certain amount, by 300 rand, in order to enable those, those, those parents to be able to continue to provide for their children. But after that, what we also did was to say, instead of giving it to the children because there's so many children, the cost of it would have been very high for the country. We started instead to introduce what we call a caregiver grant. So all of the parents of the children were, were given an income in order for them to be able to augment the child support grant and provide income for their children. That helped us to, because we already had the system in place, we had the grant framework in place, we have the, the, the information about these children, we have the SASA in, in, institution to be able to provide the grant. We use that as a tool to be able to then augment um, the income that the children are getting. So those are the ways in which we've used the child support grant or, or the issues of child support to address some of the challenges that came out of COVID. Thank you. Thank you so much, Deputy Director. And, and you, you touched on a number of points which are actually coming through the questions that I think we'll have a, a chance to come back to, including um, the importance of other services to connect to social protection. The fact that actually different grants run in parallel to, to, to meet varied needs. Um, and also touching on the progressive realization, which which Francesca outlined. So, so I think and hope we'll have some time to get back and get a little bit deeper into the discussion um, in those areas. Um, now, um, we're really honored to be able to hear from Principal Secretary Marois from the Minister, Ministry of Labor and Social Protection. He is the Principal Secretary for Social Protection. Uh, Principal Secretary, it's a real pleasure to have you join us in this in this conversation. Um, there's so much to learn from Kenya's experience in social protection for children. You're, you're one of the first countries in the region to, to push forward with child benefits and cash transfer programs for orphans and vulnerable children. And I now understand you're in a very interesting position of, of uh, investigating the possibilities of expansion and, and considering uh, achieving universality over time. So it's very much the cusp of what we're trying to get to here. So it'd be very interesting to, to hear some of the key issues that you're thinking through in Kenya as you consider uh, expanded uh, or perhaps universal approaches to child benefits uh, and whether the COVID pandemic and the response and recovery is playing any role in that thinking. So again, an honor to have you with us and over to you, Principal Secretary. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, David, and uh, distinguished participants. It is true that uh, Kenya is one of the a few countries that are running a very successful cash transfer program. But uh, allow me, colleagues and uh, friends, to discuss this in the light of today's forum. Some of the key issues towards initiating universal child benefit in the country that we may wish to highlight is the high level of poverty among children, just as highlighted by Francisca and Brenda. Another factor that we are considering while coming up with the UCP programs is that children are most vulnerable and are at higher risk of deprivation and they are of great need. So we take this also into serious account when we are doing our programming. The need to improve child development outcomes, particularly 
with the respect to human capital development. And this is a key determinant to a nation's productivity and its growth. I, I think that's very key. So when we are doing our programming and the strategy development, we take that into account. Another issue that we are considering is you the possibility of positive impact in terms of socioeconomic and the development and the returns. Also, more importantly is also the legal and the policy commitment to adopt the, the life cycle approach. This has been mentioned by Brenda. Francisca has also made reference to this. During this COVID-19, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I think children are most hit. Children, members of disability, who cannot uh, defend themselves, who cannot fed for themselves. We have also the poor vulnerable groups, the aged. I think the aged mothers who have no jobs are vulnerable. We have children, particularly we have categories of children we have identified. We have total orphans, no mother, no father. We have those who are destitute. We have street families. We have street families. We have street children. In the street families, we have children who just find themselves in the streets because of poverty at home. So the government is trying to deal with this. During this COVID-19, I think we came up as a government with programs to address the street families and the street children. And we were able to identify institutions where all of them were taken to and were given uh, sufficient health needs and uh, food, clothing, and they are there up to now. So folks, I would like to highlight in terms of COVID-19 impact with regards to UCB agenda in the country. One, COVID has driven many individuals, families and households into poverty and extreme poverty situations and these institutions due to, to the job loss, income and livelihood, and the children are most affected. You find children, particularly those who don't have parents, are heavily affected. Now, who becomes the parents of these children? Total orphans is the government. The government becomes the father and the mother. Another concern which has come up is UCB would provide an effective and administrative simple way to provide support to a broad session of families who are affected, including families of formal and informal settlements. You will find that universal health grant benefit, if properly implemented, would support those families both in informal settlement and informal settlement. And this will be a sustainable way of helping these uh, poverty-stricken individuals. Also, David and colleagues, COVID has brought to the fore the reality of urban poverty, whereupon universal health benefit would be most relevant and a social protection, intervention, and for response. It the, the lessons also learned is we tend to imagine poverty is in the peripheral areas, in the rural areas. 
every city in this world has a rural area. If we are in Nairobi, where I sit now, we have slums, and these slums are products of industrialization. During a crisis like COVID-19, I think they are most affected. You really realize during this period, His Excellency the President announced 10 billion Kenya shillings. And this amount is strictly instructed that it should be spent in slum areas, particularly in those affected counties, capitals of Mombasa, of Nairobi, Kisumu, Eldoret, where we have huge slums. And this man has been directed there to target vulnerable, vulnerable over 70, the vulnerable women, the single mothers, those who live with chronic ailment, orphaned children, those children who have no parents, right? And children living with disabilities, children with parents with disability. I'm sure, David, we are coming to that. I'm not uh, kind of jumping the ship. So the 10B, folks, which is still in progress, it, it was released in, in, in March, and the targeting is still going on, and we really want to thank UNICEF and World, World Bank because the technical team came together. We came together, and we were able to come up with targeting tools for these vulnerable groups. So... The 10B, and apart from the 10B, the government has also allocated 1 billion Kenya shillings to target vulnerable groups, and the targeting has also been done. And from the month, next month up to March, we are going to be helping the vulnerable children, particularly house-headed children, children in institutions who have totally no parents. Yes, Thank David. you so much, um, Principal Secretary. And you, uh, we touched on a number of important issues, I think, including the urban impacts of, of COVID, but also particularly the question of groups that may face particular vulnerabilities, including um, children with disabilities. And, um, and I think what we'll do is we'll circle back to this question in the, in, the, in the broader discussion, because I think it's come up in a number of areas. And one of the questions I'm seeing online is also about how one manages to find a, find a balance. Um, so, and I see that time is passing. So we're going to come back to that to that question, uh, Secretary, um, to you as well as with others. Um, and at this stage, let me introduce our final speaker, Professor Martin Rebellion. Um, Professor, you've heard the experiences of South Africa, Mongolia, Kenya, but of course you've also been working on these issues for, for a very long time. Um, and, and so we'd really like to hear what your experience suggests on the role of the universal child benefits compared to more narrowly targeted approaches. Um, and we heard from uh, Minister Arian Zaya about the sort of long-term historical perspective in Mongolia, uh, which was very interesting. And, and, and maybe uh, you could give a sense of, of the sort of historical uh, perspective on, on these questions that we're, that we're looking at. Over to you. Okay, thank you very much, David. Um, thank you, Francesca and David, for inviting me to this. And uh, it's a pleasure to be on this panel. Um, I thought David mentioned at the beginning how, how rich countries have um, something like UCB. I, um, not always you, but uh, child benefits are quite comprehensive in rich countries. But it wasn't always so. 
and it's interesting to kind of think a bit about the the history of of this policy um, because we're we're reliving that history every day today. All of the debates going back uh, 200 years on these policies are still alive and well. Uh, they had advocates back uh, 200 years ago, famously the Marquis de Condorcet in, in France and Adam Smith, and, and writing from writing from France actually, but a, a Scottish, a famous Scottish economist, as you all know. Um, uh, child benefits understood broadly to include uh, mass schooling, free mass schooling, school lunches, and of course, uh, uh, kind of transfers, more, more narrowly defined transfers considering today. If we think about the policy debates that went over the 200 years, it's, it's just all the same issues. Two big issues, financing and incentive effects. Um, one of the, maybe I think of two points in history which were critical. One, I think, was the introduction and eventual um, removal of the Speenham land system in England, which started in 1795, which was a finely targeted set of cash transfers in, incorporating family, family allowances introduced by the Justice of Berkshire, uh, 1795. It went on for about 40 years. Um, it was eventually killed by a uh, Royal Commission, 1834, uh, very much influenced by the great economists of the day, David Ricardo and Thomas Malthus. Um, but I'd say, in, in retrospect, uh, Ricardo and Malthus basically got it wrong. Um, their arguments about incentive effects were greatly exaggerated. So this is the argument that in the Spienheim land system, because you topped up wages to reach this critical minimum income, uh, that you would disconnect people's uh, incomes from the amount of work they did. And, and, and this was considered... Um, highly problematic. It turns out that the Spinham land system incentive effects were greatly exaggerated, including by a prominent economist, and it was really serving a political economy interest. It was to save money on the financing side because the, the scheme was getting very costly to, to landowners who were also in political power, and they were also <laughs> somewhat less worried than they used to be about their prospect of the French Revolution spilling across the English Channel. But And the defeat of Napoleon helped as well. So a bunch of things in the political economy which really drove the reform agenda. I don't think the incentive effects were used by critics. It wasn't a serious issue. Fast forward 140 years to Richard Nixon. President Richard Nixon in 1969 came very close to introducing in this country, the United States, came very close to introducing a, a family allowance scheme. Um, very different to Spinham land because it was universal over a large segment of the, quite a large segment of, of the distribution, a zero marginal tax rate up to a certain point, zero marginal tax rate meaning it's not means tested, so it's essentially what you'd say is universal. Um, and then a 50% marginal tax rate after that and then phasing out. So it was still, it was not universal, but it was um, a very low marginal tax rate probably close to optimum. I think if you think about the economics of this, somewhere around a marginal tax rate, 50% is close to optimal. Um, that was killed. It was never implemented. Uh, and the critics brought back Spinham land scheme. And they said again, ah, incentive effects are horrible. We'll disconnect earnings from work and the world will go to hell and, and, and everything is going to be terrible and people will stop working. And all of that was wrong. I mean, the scheme itself was not the same as Speenham Land, yet the history on, and additionally, the history on Speenham Land had been largely misinterpreted, I think. Um, uh, you know, it's just a history of stories like that. 
Um, again, two issues, incentive effects, financing, still coming back. Incentive effects often exaggerated. I think that it's an overstated problem. It's not something to ignore. If you get to 100% marginal tax rates, as Spinham Land System had in its in theory, and as some programs today have, the DBAO program in China, for example, uh, it is worrying. No question. 100% marginal tax rates on poor people are a very bad idea. But that's not what we're talking about. With the universal universalism, you get that marginal tax rate way, way down. Incentive effects should be quite minimal. Um, some issues where incentive effects do return, and of course, fertility is one of them, and this was Malthus's big concern, of course, um, Thomas Malthus back in, in the early part of the um, 19th century. Um, I, I, we don't worry about those things today in rich countries, uh, partly because through the course of the, of the Industrial Revolution, through the course of the progress of human history, it started to realize the high returns to schooling, parents investing in the quality of school and kids and not the quantity. And, so much the quantity. But I think the issues are, are still going to come back in poor countries today. Um, and, and I flag those issues. And they're not going to go away very, very easily. A final point I make on, the, on all of this, um, when you think about policy here, you've got to obviously think about implementation. You've got to think about what's feasible in the particular context you're working in. And this is another lesson from, from history. Rich countries... Um, when they didn't have the, well, no poor countries and they didn't have the information to do fine targeting, it was always going to be problematic. It was going to have a, a Spinham land couldn't be implemented the way it was intended, precisely for those reasons. And the information problems are quite severe. They're so severe in, in many developing countries today that I would say that almost overrides everything. Um, one of the information problems is that poor women and children are not just found in poor households. Even if you can find the poor households, which is very difficult, then that's not where all, the, all of the uh, women, uh, poor women and children are found. I mean, I, I've done work with others that are suggesting that a, a very large share of undernourished women and children are not living in poor households. Sure, the probability of being undernourished is larger if you're in a poor household, but there's a whole spread through the distribution. Um, another study of Bangladesh, one third of poor individuals are living in non-poor households. So, you know, even if we deal with these difficult problems of proxy means tests and the information we have in practice, uh, get realistic about this. All of that points to a lot of um, what I've, a lot of concerns about efforts at fine targeting. And on the financing side, a final point, you know, why did we get that big change in, in policy in, in, in rich countries from the mid-20th century where we started to see universal child benefits the, from the beverage report in Britain through changes in, in the US policy and across the board? Why did we see that? Um, you know, a, a number of reasons, but um, fiscal space had improved. It was more affordable. Um, and... A host of a host of things happening. Data um, we're understood. We're seeing um, rich people being shamed by the observation of, of poverty, but probably more than anything, it's the realization of the huge costs of child poverty. The way child poverty influences intergenerational transmission of poverty and inequality, the cost to the economy of underinvesting in kids. These these this is overwhelming. And, and then as soon as you put the financing questions in that light, you've got to ask yourself, well, you know, can we afford to not have effective policies 
to protect kids, particularly in poor families. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Rebellion. Um, it's really fascinating to, to hear the same stories play out through that degree of time uh, on the incentives, on the financing, then also touching on these, these questions of practicality, like practically can we even do it, which I think is, is so important. Um, let's jump in to the questions that we're receiving from the online audience, and there are uh, many. I'm going to do my best to, to capture them and pass them on. Let me start, um, Minister Arianzaya, with a question for you, which I think really touches on a big picture question in a way, which was how did the universal child benefit begin? And I think really the important question was how were decision makers convinced? And this is really the practical question uh, that I think that, that a number of us face. Over to you. Thank you. Uh, well, imagine Mongolia is having a population of 3.3 million and on density we are second in the world. So the land, the country itself is very big. Um, imagine it is four times bigger than Germany but only 3.3 million of population. So it is important for, house, uh, for, for, for Mongolia that the, the population growth is one of our main um, uh, policy uh, attention. So uh, at the beginning, the country uh, has to decide whether the ch children money is a uh, welfare or it is a development policy. So it is very important to, to decide on that. Um, as I said, uh, we, we had already in the 60s, uh, to be exactly in 1962, we had the first law on increasing the amount of pension for the mothers who have given birth and raised many children. Then uh, in the 90s, um, in, the in 1995 to 2010, we had uh, three laws passed out. Uh, also on social welfare and children money. Um, so the, there was also given a um, small amount of money to children uh, in lump sum. And also uh, it was not, uh, not monthly or sometimes monthly or uh, sometimes every three months and so on. But starting in 2012, we had a universal child benefit um, that was provided to every uh, child funded from sovereign wealth funds, which was financed from the mining royalty tax. Um, especially in 2012, um, uh, uh, the history of Mongolia is that we had an economical growth of 17% um, in that year. So the uh, economy of Mongolia is very uh, highly dependent on mining sector. So uh, it was very important to, to, to you know, the, the uh, funds uh, has been steadily decreased um, with the results of uh, the budget allocations for the child benefit. So... Uh, uh, it was kind of sharing of profits, tears of economical um, decrease and the um, uh, crisis. The Mongolian government has agreed to reduce the coverage of child benefit program. Uh, in order to qualify, we had also IMF extensions and so on. Um, 
uh, to increase the economic growth, we have expanded gradually the coverage uh, with the increase um, of economic growth. We have also expanded gradually the coverage of child benefit. And now, especially during COVID time, we have increased not only the coverage of the children, by now it is almost 96%, almost 100% of the children, but also the amount that has been given to the children's support has been raised five times. So um, it is very political decision. Um, uh, the, 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 yeah, it's very political decision, and it is important to decide whether it is welfare or um, uh, population development policy. Great, great. Thank you so much, um, so much, Minister. Uh, and I think it, you know, like you said at the end, it gets to this question of commitment and political commitment to really make the make the decision. And, and as Professor Rosalian pointed out, really a driving consideration has been in a number of countries, the huge costs of child poverty, the overwhelming long-term costs of child poverty. Um, but then again, you see many parts of the world which aren't really moving forward on this question. And so then the question a little bit is that, why is that? Is it because it's a longer term political perspective uh, that's hard to build in? Um, so, so it's a fascinating question, but clearly in Mongolia and a number of the countries here, that prioritization for this issue of child poverty is very, is very strong. Uh, let me move to a couple of other questions. I'm going to try and fold two questions into one. We'll see how that works out. So one was whether universal child benefit should be the only form of cash support for children, or is there space for other strategies and, and benefits in parallel? And, and um, Principal Secretary, I, I want to ask this question of you because I know you're doing particular work on children with disabilities and you mentioned that, so it'd be interesting to hear that. But combined with this question, there is another one, which was Principal Secretary for you, which was how effective do you feel that your targeting systems are where you are targeting? Because I think a big concern about targeted programs is actually, and I think Professor Valian pointed to this, it's very difficult to actually find people uh, and, and the targeting cannot work out. So. So let me let me pass that over to you, Principal Secretary. So one on on additional cash transfer programs to reach the most vulnerable, and it'd be great to hear something about children with disabilities, such an important group, and then on how effective you think the targeting is, and if that's a, a concern. I think you're, I think you're muted. Try now. Yeah. yeah. Good. Yeah. Thank Thank you, David. Yeah, thank you. I've, I appreciate the comments from all the speakers. The last speaker was Professor Martin. I don't want to lose the point of initiatives and financing, which is very key. And also the point he raised regarding not necessarily all poor children are found in vulnerable households, I think we should take home these and do some more investigation around it. It is true that uh, Kenya is not only depending on universal child benefit programs. As you may know now, His Excellency the President has rolled out, which is something that can be borrowed across the countries, rolled out presidential bursary program which ushers into the economy 400 million per year. And this covers poor children from vulnerable households. And the targeting is very strict. It is done up to the, the last unit 
the grassroots. And only poor children's total orphans are first targeted. These benefits, all those children who have no parents who join higher education, we have lower primary, middle primary up to grade eight, and then we have high school, which starts from form one up to form four, then university. And a major program, which is key and related to universal child grantees, free primary education in the country, Kenya, where children, regardless of whether you are coming from a rich family, benefit from free education, no payment of fees, the government funds everything. Your duty as a, a guardian or as a, a sponsor to these children is just to buy clothes. In some ways, we have children who are even supported by institutions. So I thought we should not just be looking at uh, one way of funding of, of programming universal child benefit. We, we, sh we should expand. We should go to look at healthcare programs. These are human beings who require healthcare programs. They need, to, they need education. If you want a better world tomorrow, then invest in these children in terms of education. Currently, Kenya has achieved 100% uh, uh, transition rate, both in primary and in secondary school. You can see that. 15 years back, we used to have a lot of children who were in the streets. But now since education is free, we have all children, it's mandatory. It is embedded in the law that they must be in school no matter what, right? Because it is it's about the betterment of our country. In the, the next day is about the betterment of these children. So you don't improve our country by simply investing in roads only, improving healthcare, okay, which the government is doing here improve also in education the economy of a nation will be charged by the quality of its human resources the human resources drive the economy anyway so i thought it is important to raise these issues that much as we have these programs running under universal health coverage the government is also rolling out uh, universal health cover, okay, which is now covering all families, including the poor families. So it may be wise to expand and look at, particularly when we are rolling at the free primary education, the emphasis given to poor children. The presidential bursary, which His Excellency has introduced, is specifically for the poor children who join secondary school. And they are put in bursary from form one to form four. And the government follows through up to high school. And the government is about to come up with a program of follow through programs up to university. So you have educated this kid all the way from primary, secondary, free to university, has graduated. 
back into the job market. So what? So what the government is doing is to kind of do tracking, find out where are these children going to. Are we able to find jobs for them, something that they can do to better their lives and better this economy? I think child grant benefit programs should be will be implemented in phases because of the fiscal space highlighted also by Professor Martin here. Because of the fiscal space affecting almost every country, even the developed countries, you cannot implement the entire phase. Like what Brenda is saying here is from zero to age four, you, you take care of that category cluster and make sure that they are cushioned. From four to nine, right, you then you come up with the packages around that. Then from nine to 15, like that, like that. If we had sufficient fiscal space, then we would carry all these clusters along. And it is what the government is doing. And uh, I want to confirm that uh, together with UNICEF, with development partners who have really weighed in, UNICEF has trained our officers in South Africa. We really want to thank the, uh, the government of South Africa, Brenda take our, our appreciation, because our teams were trained there and they have very nice, good programs on universal child grant. We also want to appreciate UNICEF on this, the World Bank, development partners that bring money. But my emphasis, colleagues, if we cannot invest in quality education for the children of this world, be it South Africa, America, Kenya, wherever, then we are losing our economy. We are losing these children in the future. We are losing our countries in the future and we are losing our economies. Next thing is health of these children. Ed quality education, not just education, education is ed education anyway. Quality education and that's broad. Then health, health for the good health. If you guarantee that, if we do guarantee that, even in this program we are articulating here, we shall have no problem. We maybe because of time, David, allow me to comment on children's uh, in disability vis-a-vis -vis the program. Yeah, if you could very briefly, uh, Principal Secretary, because yeah, I'm also just seeing how fast the time is going, please. Yeah, we, we, we have other programs. We have started examining how we can include other programs and the cushion children's from families, vulnerable families living with disabilities. I think that is what the government of Kenya is working on currently. So that the motto of the His Excellency the President is, we should not leave anybody behind as long as she or he is a human being. Thank you, David, and sorry for overstepping my time. No, no, thank you. It was really fantastic to hear hear from you. And there are so many different points to touch on. Um, and I think it was great to hear about the expansion of sort of universal health and universal education. We've, that's really been a well, the universal health is still very far to go, but it's been something which has really been pushed forward very hard 
Um, but then it's interesting to, to hear the, the conversations beginning now about universal social protection. But to me, it seems there are strong parallels here that we need to achieve universality across these across these different areas. Um, we sadly do have very limited time, but, but we'll move on. We have, I think, about another five to 10 minutes for questions before we move into uh, closing. And there are many good questions that I'm not going to get to, sadly. Um, but um, let me come, um, Sebeko, to you. Uh, and there's a question here about the risk of programs being cut in response to a COVID recession. And then the question, well, and furthermore, how can you expand, which is what we're talking about in the context of shrinking budgets. So I wonder, um, in the context of South Africa, how you see this question. Is there a risk of the program being cut or do you see it as something which is, uh, has the political support as an integral and, and indeed could be a continued and expanding focus? Uh, th thank, thank you. That's a, that's a fascinating question. But I think, I think one of the benefits in the South African context is that uh, from the Constitution, which is, um, though the Bill of Rights has established these rights, the right to social assistance, to, to social grants as a, as a constitutional right, and that right is justiciable. What has then happened is the country has created legislation which says these are the circumstances under which people can 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 access social grants. So the, the chances, I mean, the only way to cut, for example, the child support grant in the country is perhaps by reducing the amount of money that you're giving or by changing the means test. But the program itself cannot be cut because it's already established in legislation. So if you are poor, you are entitled to, so to, to and you meet the, the age, you are under the age of 18. Any child under the age of 18 in terms of the law now is required to be able to access the benefit. They only need to do the means test. So the way to cut it would be perhaps by reducing the means test to a lower amount or by, um, sorry, but, but yeah, or, or also by reducing the, the value of the grant, which both of which would be very difficult to do. Um, and in the South African context, I, I think because there's such a high commitment to, to continue with the program of the, the anti-poor strategy in the country, there isn't a very high risk from a political perspective, but there is a constraint on the fiscus. And this is why it's been difficult to move to universalization per se, because we've had to weigh the, the benefits of, do you want to, to expand coverage to everybody or do you want to improve the quality of the benefit that you are giving by increasing the value or perhaps by increasing the means test? So these are the debates that have been going on over a long time in the country. And so far, we, we found that, in fact, if you were to universalize the grant, you would spend like 25 billion. But that is the same amount of money that, you, that it, it would cost you if you were to increase the value of the child support grant to at least the food poverty line, because the grant currently is at a lower level than that. So, so it's those things of... What are the priorities? But the scope to, to take away the program altogether in South African context would require a whole legislative change. And I can tell you that is not going to be possible, not only because it takes long and it's difficult politically to change the legislation, but also because of the strong political support, not only from the, the government, but also from civil society for these grants. In fact, the country is, is being now actually being challenged to move in the opposite direction, to universalize and to increase so there are campaigns currently going on in the country in terms of that because of COVID to say we should increase the value of the child support grant. We should, in fact, be covering more people. So, so there is very little political space to reduce the, the, the benefits currently, even in the context of reduced, uh, um, reduced fiscal space. 
Um, the argument is let's give money so that we can then uh, ensure that we are building the economy going forward. To, to, uh, there, there's an argument in the country currently that if you actually give more money to poor households because of the inequality question, you will be able to improve the economy in the long run by building up a purchasing power, creating a market for smaller businesses, etc. So the, the, the money that goes into social grants will actually be an investment in over time building, rebuilding the economy. That's the kind of perspective that is being shared in the country, as opposed to thinking about actually removing the, the agenda. There's no agenda in the country. There's not even a conversation about taking away the, taking away the benefits. Thanks. Thank you so much. And it's, uh, I mean, I think it, it fits very much into these questions of political economy and the strength of political economy around more universal type grants. I think it's also noteworthy that sort of both in South Africa and in Mongolia and other countries, an approach which is um, not exactly affluence tested, but very broadly reaching large parts of the population, but without necessarily reaching the top, is something that a number of countries, I think, are finding a certain level of, of comfort with as a balance given the fiscal constraints. Um, time is really running on. Um, I want to come with with, a, with just final questions. There are so many good questions we're not going to be able to get to, um, but a final question, Francesca, for you and, and, and Martin, for you. And you will have heard the conversation, seen questions. There may be other things that you want to very briefly uh, touch on. The question I wanted to come to, Francesca, was was this question on targeting, which has come through in, 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 a, in a couple of the questions that, that we've heard about. And what does the report find really in the effectiveness? Because this is a crucial question in when governments set out to, to reach people and children living in poverty. Thanks, David, and, and thanks everyone for the for the. I'm learning a lot. Um, just quickly on targeting. Well, as I mentioned at the outset, I mean, I think there. It, it, it's very difficult to discuss this in, in absolute terms of targeted and not targeted. This is really a question of continuum, and I know that not might not be very you know some hot or straightforward answer, but that's that's actually how it is. And I, I notice. Um, one of the questions that have come through about is, is around, you know, some programs are universal in name but targeted in practice. It alludes to the fact that yes, some some programs that are approaching universal coverage um, actually contain within them some elements of targeting, for instance, or means let's say of means testing. For instance, when higher income households are, or wealthier households are either. Um, uh, screened out or for affluence tests, as you mentioned, or if they're taxed back, so it's true, particularly when you're relying or there are, there are elements of, of um, you're relying in part also on the tax system, what is might be labeled a universal child benefit might de facto contain some elements of means testing in it. I don't think we need, I don't, I think it's very difficult to, you know, categorically say whether that's desirable or not desirable, that that can work in terms of reducing inequality, for instance, that may work absolutely well and may be preferable over a fully, you know, flat uh, um, um, universal transfer system like to everyone. So I think we need to be, um, and, and, you know, this is not the report saying it or only, this is, you know, Tony Atkinson, many people have written for over, you know, for decades about these issues where, and this is where policy also gets interesting. Where The, the question is, how do we make sure that we minimize or indeed eliminate the risks that the, the, the target that are associated with targeting regarding 
um, you know, the potential negative incentive effects, which which can be minimal, but also you know might be there. Um, the, the the costs, so the administrative costs, and and the the social costs associated with narrow means testing, the, and that arise, for instance, from all the information requirements, the barriers to 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 adequate information that that that, that inhibit or, or you know prohibit the actual implementation effectively of tax targeting. This is what we need to make sure happens, and this leads me to also a point around um, that, that has come up around discussing child benefits in isolation of wider systems. Of course, that's completely you know that, that's hugely limiting. They they don't operate in a vacuum. They operate as part of wider tax and transfer systems, and the way and as we discuss their design, their implementation, and of course, their, and also their impact, we have we we have to take into account how they interact with the remainder of of policy. And such systems, in turn, in turn, are reflecting the you know universalism. Uh, you know, the, the approach can be more universal or universalistic, as opposed to systems that. More narrowly, focus on poverty relief, or you know, or on, on the provision or institutionalization of sort of residual safety nets. So it really is a system issue, and then within that, how child benefits and the and the and the elements of, of targeting or universalism within them function. It does, Francesca. Yeah, so much, and, and there's so much to say. And I'm sorry to 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 be rushing people. Um, Professor Ravalian, let me let me come to you. For, for your reflections. Um, I, I, mean, I was interested to get your sense on how you see the sequencing, seeing the historical context you put, how countries might think about the sequencing, um, but also, I mean, the time is just so tight, I may be asking the impossible, but also I think you wanted to come in on the question of cash being the only the only form of, uh, of, of support. Um, yeah. So whatever you can, can short Okay. Um, Three, three quick comments, really. Um, one is think about child benefit in a very comprehensive way, <laughs> as was mentioned by the um, by the other speakers, including the um, principal secretary for Kenya. Um, you know, it's it's a package of things, and and if you just focus on the cash component, you've also got a severe risk that you're going to finance it by cutting those other things, and the benefits to poor kids are, 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 are ambiguous at best. And that's happened repeatedly in history. Um, Nixon's proposal was a great proposal, but he was financing in part by cutting AFDC, aid to families with dependent children. Other examples, I think Andrew Yang's universal basic income was good up to a point, but when they, it was also being financed in part by cutting, optionally, uh, voluntarily cutting um, other welfare benefits. So again, the gains to poor people become ambiguous. So you really can't avoid looking at this package. And that leads to my second point. Um, targeting versus universalism on the looking just at the benefit side is a bit silly, really. I mean, it's it, once you realize these things have got to be financed, even if you have a universal benefit, targeting comes into the financing side. How are you going to find, uh, hopefully, the non-poor people who are going to finance this thing? So maybe we should think of uh, universal benefit but put a lot of uh, emphasis on targeting the rich from the point of view of financing the thing and making the case to rich people why this is so important to the, to the development of their economy, to the external cost to them of child poverty are huge and to their children could be huge because of this longer-term cost that I mentioned before. And third, um, 
incentive effects, you know, it's never going to go away, and it shouldn't go away because very finely means-tested so-called perfect targeting has horrible incentive effects in theory. 100% marginal tax rates are a disaster. Don't ever even think of doing that. That's all fine. That's all clear in theory. My point again, the theory just isn't that relevant here because we just can't do this kind of fine targeting in practice, even in relatively rich countries, but certainly not in countries with weaker administrative capabilities. Um, so we have to, again, just get realistic about what is possible and what is not. But I'd be very inclined as a first step to think of a, a initial phasing in of something reasonably universal on the, on the benefit side, but reasonably comprehensive, identifying a target of package, if you like, a goal of a package of basic uh, needs for that you want poor kids to have to satisfy, uh, and in terms of both the, the for their, their their food, their clothing, their housing, and think of that phased in, but think very strongly about how you're going to finance it and ensuring that it's not financed by cutting other things that matter to those kids. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you so so much, Martin. That was super uh, super clear uh, and on point. So. Um, I think we've really sadly reached the end of the general discussion. Um, there's much left to be said and on the table, but let's us spend uh, a couple of minutes uh, for each of you just to give overall reflections. Um, in, in UNICEF, we're currently running a what we're calling a reimagine campaign, which is like how how can we reimagine the future of policy and program for kids in a post-COVID world? And and I think in a way it fits into this question of what role for universal child benefits as we as we reimagine. Um, I know it's a very complicated question, as Martin has, has outlined. There are there are caveats, but just to get your thoughts um, in, in the context you're you're in in a couple of minutes, um, how do you see this question on in terms of is it time for universal child benefits? Uh, Francesca, let's start with you. Thanks, David. Well, I think the you know the the the, the context we're facing and the crisis we're facing does present. It has opened up a number of questions, and we're, we're seeing governments adjust existing child benefits uh, in terms of you know, expanding their coverage where possible or, or expanding the value of transfers. We've heard about some of the adjustments made. Countries that don't have benefits of this kind are, are in some cases, you know, considering implementing them. So this is an opportunity, and I think that that, that, that this should, we need to try and harness this because child benefits, as we've heard across the board from all panelists and as, as shown in the report and you know, a whole host of studies, can be extremely beneficial. And the, the, in, in this, not just in terms of, I want to emphasize this in terms of child poverty that is hugely, you know, is, is, a, is an important objective um, for society as a whole, but also for, for poverty and inequality in, in societies more widely. So I just you know want to emphasize the point that this is a moment to 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 take stock um, and to build on the adjustments that are being made with a view of in the medium to long term you know building policies but also systems that have to include of course the financing angle um, that are that are more universal in nature in terms of coverage but also sustainability and continuity. Excellent. Thank you so much, Francesca. Um, Martin, I wanted to come to you next. You've actually already given a really great answer to this question, I think, previously, but I don't know if there's anything that you, you would want to add in in summary. Uh, you're on mute. Correct. Uh, I, I, I think, um, I, to my own surprise, I covered everything I wanted to cover. Um, very quickly, though, on the context of um, the pandemic, 
this is very interesting. I mean, that's a very academic comment, but um, it's a huge, horrific thing we're facing and, and, and it's hurting poor people more than anything we've seen in 100 years. So, okay, we've seen a lot of response on the social protection side from, the, from a lot of countries. Um, I'm kind of wondering what's going to happen as the pandemic fades. Uh, Brazil, for example, massive investment in transfers, massive scaling up. Um, and they're very, very worried how, how they're going to phase out of it. Um, that discussion is going to bring back all of the same issues we've talked about here. There's going to be discussions of targeting, of, of phasing out. With, and um, uh, you know, we, we've covered those issues, but they, they're, they're, they're alive and well. Um, it's also highlighted something a, a bit deeper that um, we all realised, anybody who works on poverty knows this, but um, the, the huge... Um, kind of infrastructure, home infrastructure deficit facing poor people in the world. Um, I did some calculations with colleagues of just how many people in, in poor countries could actually implement the WHO recommendations on protection from, the, from COVID-19. It's tiny. Poor households in the world don't have the capability to do this either in terms of their, their work, they can't afford to, to, to lock down, but in terms of their home environment, the density of the home environment, the ability to even go to the toilet without leaving the premises, the longer-term investments in the home environment, which matter a lot to kids' development too, um, they, the pandemic has highlighted those things, those concerns as well going forward. Thank you. Thanks so much, uh, Professor Abalian. Um, Mr. Becker, let us pass to you for your your thoughts uh, in, the, in the in the South African context. All right, thanks. I think from our context, we we have to tackle three challenges at the same time. One is the poverty that I spoke to quite a bit, and then there's unemployment, which has worsened now in the COVID period, and then also inequality. So the, 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 the child benefits that are in place, which I've also mentioned, are actually reaching quite a large proportion of poor children in the country. The, the debate that's happening in the country is not, is, is, well, the, the universalization uh, um, policy is something that we've been working on, but in terms of the priority for now, it's really dealing with the huge fallout of unemployment and the fact that the age group in the, you see our social assistance program does not deal with the age group between 18 and 59. They don't have any kind of social assistance. We've created a temporary grant for them now during the, during the COVID uh, pandemic, but at the end of October that expires. And so for us, the priority has been, how do you deal with those households uh, where there isn't a child beneficiary who has a grant and they also isn't employment now due to COVID, they've lost jobs. And, and that has become a much bigger priority. So in that context, it's much harder to argue for universalization. What we are arguing for though, what is, is something that is on the table to consider is to maybe improve the value of the, of the, of the child support grant because it's still below the food poverty line. And, and expecting that over time, as you uh, bring more people into the economy to, to participate in the economy as you deal or reduce the, the, the fallout from unemployment by providing some kind of income support there because that's where the the urgency is for now so so i don't um 
while it's not discounted the, the issue of universalization, we think that the coverage is quite high of poor children in the country as is. And so we are continuing on that on that trajectory of saying, let us rather be looking now at the quality of care, or rather the quality of the of the benefit, and also be maybe moving the means test further and further to higher levels of income. Um, that's the, the, the direction that you are pursuing. But the primary thing at the moment really is to say, what about people who are not accessing any kind of support whatsoever? How are we going to deal with them post the, 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 the October period where we're providing the temporary income support? So, so the challenge is there for us. But yes, we think universalization should happen. We just think the trajectory is by gradually, as we did already, gradually increasing the means test and gradually increasing the value. That's how the approach that we are thinking of taking. Wonderful, thank you so, so much. Um, Principal Secretary, um, over to you for your, your thoughts on that in the context of Kenya. Uh, yeah. Thank you, David. And, uh, Thank you, my colleagues who filed in their comments. David, I wish to emphasize much as the government of Kenya is stressing on universal child benefit, we are also looking out of the box or thinking without the box anyway, that is it only cash? These are issues which every participant here has raised. The country is looking at uh, how do we benefit poor children. Cash is one form anyway, but free primary education, free secondary education, up to university and uh, jobs sourcing for them so that they are productive, health, universal health coverage. The government is also improving infrastructure or all slum areas in the country, like those in the capital of Nairobi. His Excellency, the President has insisted there must be proper tarmac roads, proper infrastructure raised by Professor Martin here, you know, proper housing, clean water, social amenities, so that these poor kids live like uh, normal human beings anyway. So much as we look at cash transfer programs, which I tend to agree with speakers here, Brenda, that do you increase the value or do you spread uh, the targeting? Would you rather spread the targeting and cover more population and bring in the long run you have improved their purchasing power, you have motivated the markets, right? And then you have an economy which is running. David, this was a wonderful conference. <laughs> I wish it was allocated three, four hours. Thank you so much, colleagues. Thank you so much, Principal Secretary. And I'll let you know that I did request that it was longer, but I'm told no one can take more than an hour and a half at Zoom, uh, probably me included. Um, Minister Arianzai, let me pass to you for your final reflections in the context of uh, Mongolia. 
Yeah, thank you. I got a question from the floor whether is there a significant part of the population in Mongolia that is opposed to a universal approach and is there political debate about universal child benefit? Of course there are. Of course there are political debates and opposers of uh, universal child benefit, but in normal times, in um, peaceful times. And now uh, during the COVID time, it is no question about to delete or uh, there is a high demand on universal child benefit and only the universal child benefit was the answer to the shock resilience to the to the shock um, response so uh, i'd like to express the persistent commitment of the government of mongolia not to reduce the budget allocation for social welfare programs during the covid times, whether it is 2020 or 2021, we never know when it is uh, going to end. So uh, we attach great importance to the child benefit as considering the benefit is an investment for children's future development, not social welfare service. So therefore, we uh, we will actually redefine the concept of uh, child benefit and reflect it into um, our nearest uh, new law regard uh, laws regarding child um, and mother. And also we will pay attention to the amount of the child benefit in peaceful times. Reconsider also payment method, whether it is a cash or other services. Um, uh, but still, during COVID times, the government reassures its commitment on the social welfare programs and universal child benefit. Um, I'd like to express now to uh, my um, appreciation to the organizers for providing us the opportunity to learn from each other and share experiences. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Minister. Thank you so much, uh, everyone. Uh, all of our panelists for, for joining, for spending the time, for the enormous amount of work that goes into providing the supports that you do, um, the sharing your experience so openly. Um, it really has been a tremendous, uh, a tremendous hour and a half. And, and for us who have been on a long journey of investigating this question, it's a really, really nice moment to, to hear about uh, to hear about these experiences. Um, I think I'll just end with a few further times. So I'll just end with a few quick thoughts. Um, maybe in some ways summarizing, maybe in some ways not. Um, first of all, I think one thing that came through really, really strongly, super clearly, were the huge costs of child poverty, the immediate costs on children, the long-term costs on uh, families, communities, societies, economies. I think there's, that's, that's super clear, and it came through really, really strongly. Um, clearly, child benefits can play a role uh, in addressing that, but it was also, there's also cautions. It's essential not to rob Peter to pay Paul. There's no point uh, or limited point in having an effective child benefit or universal child benefit programs if schools are weak, if kids can't go, if there's not health insurance, if there aren't social welfare services. These things have to come together to work. And I think that takes us to the question of, of financing. And really, I think um, in lots of contexts, we can't be thinking about a fixed budget constraint because taking the same amount of money and spreading it thin isn't gonna work. We know one of the key drivers in the child benefit or family benefit is effective is if the amount is sufficient. So, so we have to look at that in a flexible way, which means, as Martin said, looking at the role of the finance, uh, receiving the finance, as well as the role of the benefits and looking at progressive systems which enable uh, these programs to function. It's really the only, it's the only way forward. Um, and I think probably just to end by saying, that universal child benefits um, are a vision we can work towards, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact of increasing coverage over time. 
So to come back to this to a central fact in a way that I began with, children are massively overrepresented in poverty, and we hear the impacts of that. We've heard about that today. Yet underrepresented in terms of receiving child benefits, with two or two out of three kids around the world not receiving anything. But really, I think the process of expansion um, is is key, um, and then sequencing um, towards uh, uh, universality, um, but through a sequence of logical steps that makes sense through time. Um, so those are some thoughts. Um, but of course, the beauty is that. Great minds rarely think alike and fools often differ. So I would really encourage everybody to have a look at the report, uh, the brief. There's going to be a blog coming out shortly, as well as do share the recording of this webinar, which everyone will be receiving, uh, and have a look and see what you think uh, as we continue uh, to work together towards what is clearly uh, a, common, a common goal, um, although the path will maybe complex and, and differ by, by context. So huge thanks to the panelists, huge thanks to the participants for joining, for ODI, for their uh, work in putting this together, as well as the work together on the report. It's really been a, a pleasure from UNICEF's side. Um, and I look forward to joining you all again online and maybe uh, at some point in person. So take care and enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.